welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, welcome back to our uh, walkthrough of the book of James, very practical book from the brother of Jesus. Uh, from what we talked about last week in the introduction, and we'll be uh, continuing in chapter 1 um, this week, picking up in verse 13. But it's, it's interesting as we walk through this book uh, how many similarities there are to the teachings of Jesus, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount as we kind of walk through. Yes, and so last week we got to jump right in and talk about the need for endurance and the need to ask God for wisdom as we try and navigate through the different trials that this life will give to us. And we also talked about kind of a cool theme throughout James is James addressing poor brethren who might be struggling with their view toward people who are rich. And he'll tell them that they are rich in Christ, that that's ultimately who they're rich in. And so uh, today we will actually kind of continue this theme of learning how to have endurance as we go through trials and really how we should view the trials that God gives us. Um, And so Lord willing, we'll get to talk about that today. So we'll go ahead and jump right in. And uh, we're going to start off by reading verses 12 down to verse uh, 18. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. All right, so uh, we covered some of verse 12 last week. Verse 12 is kind of a bridge verse in between these sections of James. We've started out where he talks about, in verse 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So we talked a good bit last time about uh, temptation and trial and how that can produce joy in us when we suffer wisely and ask God for wisdom. And here he talks about the blessing for the one who remains steadfast. But now a question that comes up. Well, why am I suffering so much? Like, What's going on with this temptation in my life? Uh, where does that come from? And in verse 13, he's careful to say, listen, nobody can say if you're being tempted, I'm being tempted by God because God himself cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now, I think it's important to note as we get going in this that this is the same word for trial. Going back to verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds, it's the same word. It can be translated trial or temptation. And most of our English Bibles do translate it, temptation here in this section. I think that's probably a good move in the sense that I think he's talking about a different kind of trial here. Um, a different kind of testing. Because we do know from other passages in the Old Testament, God tested Abraham when he, he tested, said, 
Yeah, and I was, he tested Moses and the children of Israel as well. It was pretty clear that that's what the manna was for, was to test them and try them. Yeah, in Deuteronomy, it talks about, I tested you, you right. know, in the wilderness. And so God clearly puts people to the test. He puts them through situations that make them stronger. And when we encounter situations that can make us stronger, we should count that joy. We should be grateful for that. Here, it seems to be in a more narrow sense of that word for trial that James is talking about. There's a specific kind of trial that God doesn't deal with so much. Th these kinds of trials or temptations might be the better word here, which is usually how our Bible is translated, is more us tempting ourselves with evil. Our own desires are the source of these particular kinds of trials. God is not tempted by these things. He does not provide these things. It's our own wicked cravings that produce some of the trials in our life. I mean, some trials don't come from our own selves. They just come from hard situations or things from outside. But this idea of craving evil, I want that wicked thing, I think that's the more narrow sense that James is using here when he talks about temptations. And that's the thing that God is not tempted with evil in the same way that we are. Um, he, there's no evil thing in him that would want that evil thing. Now, Jesus came, became a man, and he was tempted. He was tried, same word in Hebrews 4, just like we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus went through trials and temptations in the wilderness. I mean, Matthew and Luke give us the, the details of how and, Satan tries Jesus. And as much as Jesus is son of God, he is deity, he is fully God, he is also son of man. Uh, he has humanity, and he, he gave up some sort of ability there when he came down to this earth. And so he was tempted as a man are a man is, just as we yeah. are as well. And a lot of that discussion, honestly, is, I like to say, above my pay grade. Yeah, there exactly. are some things about the deity and humanity of Jesus I fully affirm that he is completely man, and he is completely God. Yes, that's right. Um, but there are things about that that are mind-bending to us because there's no one you can compare with Jesus. He's the only God-man yeah. that ever existed. Fully human, fully God. Yes. And his temptation is one of those areas where we're very grateful. Like Hebrews makes the point, he can be our high priest because he was tested. That's he was right. tempted like we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to go through what we go through. But I love how personal James makes it in verse 14. When each one is tempted and is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This kind of gets to the personal side of it that Stephen was talking about, where it's our specific cravings and desires that James has in mind here. And so in verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So this is the first of kind of two brought forth or birds that we'll talk about in this section. And the first one is simply talking about different things that we lust or desire. And that's going to look different among different types of people and from people from different backgrounds. Um, I think when we think of the word lust, it often has that connotation of sexual sin in view. Uh, we went through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus will talk about not only should you not commit adultery, don't even lust after a woman in your heart. So that's certainly true of that word lust. Yeah. And my Bible has desire. Oh, okay. So it's a little broader word. that, And I think that's the idea here. Yep. Um, things that we desire that are evil, that do transgress against what God said. And that's going to look different for everybody. For one person, it might be a sexual desire. For some, it might be lying or greed or covetousness or whatever have you. But his point here is, is in that moment that you're lusting, it's going to eventually give birth to sin if you stay there. 
Right. Um, and temptations are going to come. Temptation in and of itself is not a sin. It is not sinful. It is going to come. But it's what we do in that moment of temptation and trial that can give birth to sin. And that's what James is talking about. Well, it's about. like Cain and Abel. You know, when Cain is angry with his brother and God comes to him and says, you have a choice. You know, sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. Yeah. And we all have a choice when we are tempted. Temp- being tempted, having the urge to do something wrong or think something wrong is not sinful, like you said. But we are able in that moment to choose where am I going to put my trust and what am I going to pursue? I have a choice in this moment. And God put the choice to Cain. You know, If you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. Um, if you do not do well, sin's crouching at the door. It's desires for you. Like It's growling. It's ready to eat you alive. But here, I think it's so important to see that we have to treat temptation and lust and desire seriously. Because nobody wants for sin to bring forth death in their life. No, nobody says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to die. Like We don't think about the consequences. But he's connecting that moment of temptation to its consequence. When you give in to desire, it will give birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, that's the way my Bible puts it, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And look, that's what's on the table. That, that's what is on the table for sin, is death. And I think, unfortunately, we live in a culture, a society, even amongst religious contexts, where sin is kind of softened. Uh, well, we kind of all do it. it. It is what it is. You know, not a big deal. Let's just try and do better. But here it's very clear. Sin brings forth death. Um, and that's been consistent. Why did Jesus have to go through the uh, go to the cross? Because sin equals death. I mean, he had to go to the death for the sin that we committed. It, it's a serious crime against God. And so, if, if we will see our temptations that way, it's in a real sense the devil trying to kill us, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. Then hopefully that will heighten our sensitivity toward different temptations and wanting to do better. And so, I appreciate James' strong language here. We need to understand that that is the consequence of sin. It's death. Right. The wages of sin is death. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's the way Paul will put it in Romans. Yes. But I think that um, he's going to make a contrast here in this next part. Um, in verse 16, this is one of those times in the New Testament where it says, Do not be deceived. It's cool sometimes to see all the different times when that phrase comes up in the New Testament. Yeah. Because Satan's tool, his primary tool is to trick us, is to deceive us, to feed us lies. And here James is saying, don't don't get this mixed up. Do not be deceived by this. People are going to lie to you about this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God's not the source of the problems in your life. God can use the problems in your life to be a blessing to you. He can, it can produce perfection, produce endurance in you, back to verse 2 and 3. But understand that those like evil cravings and stuff, that's not from God. Every good and perfect gift is from God. Um, God's not given you the like specific temptation in your life. Like that's from your own lust. That's from your own desires. But God gives good and perfect gifts. And so don't get that mixed up. And I think I think that's really important for us to recognize is there are times where people want to kind of question God and maybe even say it like, well, why did God make me this way? Why did God put this in my life? And I want to say, again, God allows us to be tested. God allows us to be tried. But I think we have to be really, really careful not to somehow try to blame God 
for our own desires or our own wicked temptations, our own cravings. That's not from God. God gives good gifts. Um, he's not the, the one giving uh, you know, twisted things. We live in a fallen world. And there's consequences of that. And not all that comes from God. A lot of that's because of sin and because of sin entering into the world. And so I think that there's an important contrast here where we think about God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Um, and even the one able to use the hard things in our life to make us stronger. But we have to acknowledge him um, as, as he's the source of all pure and good things. But can you see the temptation here that James is getting at, like Stephen said, as he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. It can be really easy to fall into that mindset of, well, I'm only suffering or I'm only going through this because God, it's his fault. He's the reason why I'm going through all this. And James is saying, no, stand, get away from that mentality and away from that thinking. God, in fact, is the father of lights. Every perfect and good gift comes from him. And so we need to have that that worldview of who God is. Which, by the way, that phrase, Father of Lights, I didn't think about that for a long time. It seems to maybe be a reference to the stars, um, that he created the lights of the heavens, the you know, the greater light, the lesser light, the, and the stars. The luminaries. Yes, the luminaries. That's, a, that's an old <laughs> word. Like a $5 word. Yeah. Um, but he um, created them as a consistent sign of his faithfulness. And his life. They, they, they keep time for the universe. Yes. And you can judge years and seasons and all these things by the lights. And so it's saying, like, he's the father of lights, and there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is not going to look different one day and then look different the next day. Like, uh, you know, I picture almost like a sundial, you know. Like oh, that's exactly across. right. And it was like, oh, he's changing like the clock. He's just, just depends on what time it is, how God is. No, God is like the lights in the heavens. He's the one who doesn't change. We are the ones who change. And it's cool to think about throughout all the centuries of the entirety that the world has been here, a lot of people have come and went in those times. I, I, I really wonder what, what the number of how many people, how many souls have existed on the world. All of them, though, have an end. But the sun that God created, it's been there throughout all those generations. And God is that source of consistency. He is the source of light. And so it is a comparison is what it is. Um, but in verse, um, in verse 18... It says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So this is the second birth that we see in this section. Uh, the first, of course, talking about lust, producing and bringing birth to sin. And now, of course, in the exercise of God's will, he brings us forth by the word of truth. Yep. Which, two, two different seeds. Right. You've got the, um, the seed of our own desire. Um, and when you see in verse 15 where it says, like, Desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That phrase for sin brings forth death. In verse 18, he says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So he's saying, you're not born of that you know, corrupted desire. You're born of the word of truth. God planted that seed of his word in your hearts. And now, when you live the way he wants you to live, you're being born, not from those corrupt desires, but from God's good, perfect word. He's the source of good gifts. Now live like it. And what's kind of cool, if you wanted to tie that back into verse 17 with this idea of God being the father of lights, 
God is also producing that growth in us as well that the sun gives to the plant. So that's, that's right. That's kind of like cool. the sun. That's right. And he, then he calls us a first fruits of his creatures. Like God is showing in us, here's what I'm capable of. Here's what I can do. If you will listen to my word, if you will let it sink into your hearts, um, which we'll see this analogy used in verse 21 in just a minute, receive with meekness the implanted word, then it will change you. You will become a first fruit of what God can do. And God can say, look, I'm already changing people's lives. Look at the first fruits of my harvest. Look at these people who are doing my word, um, not just hearers of it, but doers of it. And that's what I can do for you as well. This is a form of simple evangelism. That's right. And so in our transformation, as God works in our hearts and as we grow, hopefully people will be able to see that in our lives. They'll see the changes that we've made and they'll see the joy that we have being a Christian. They see the joy that we have, even though we might be going through a temptation or through some type of suffering. And they'll say, what makes you so different? Why is this person acting this way in the midst of this trial that they're going through? And of course, we will get to say because of our God. Uh, We have hope in him, and we are the first fruits of that, and hopefully that will teach others. Amen. Well, this brings us to the last part of chapter 1 here. We'll pick up reading in James 1, verses 19 through 27, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for then he looks at at himself and goes away and at once forgets what what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so I think we've already learned what James likes to call these brethren. In uh, in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And now in verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren. And I just kind of like that because what we're going to talk about in verse 19 is something I forget a lot, but it is something I know and I need to be reminded of. And so remember that the New Testament writers, they sometimes are writing things to people that maybe they've not heard before. It's a new teaching or a clarification on a past teaching. And then there's times where they just remind them of something they already know and something that they need to hear. And for this point, it's everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Man, super I, simple words. Yes, and I super mean, hard application. I look at my life, and uh, you just kind of look out in the world as well, and it's almost like these are completely backwards sometimes, right? Someone is slow to hear, someone is quick to speak, and someone is quick to get angry. It's just completely backwards. And he's saying, no, you got to slow it down here. Um, listen to other people, and then be slow in the way that you respond, and then even be slow to anger. And maybe there is a justifiable reason to get angry at something, um, righteous anger. But even in those moments, you still need to be slow to it. Slow to get there. And it describes God that way. He's slow to anger. He's quick to mercy and quick to grace and quick to listen to us. 
Um, I also think somebody pointed this out to me that certainly we need to be quick to hear when we're listening to other people. But one of the points in this passage is being quick to hear the word of God. That is exactly right. In verse 18, he talks about he just brought us forth by the word of truth. And then we need to be quick to hear. And then verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. Yes. The main one that we need to be quick to hear is the God himself through his word. And so I, I really think that's helpful to see in the context here. This phrase, be quick to hear, is bookended by listen to the word of God. Let that be what the seed planted in you that brings forth its fruit. And let that, as you kind of tie that into this anger that he's talking about, let God's word be what tells you what to get angry about. Uh, I think often anger is provoked within us whenever someone's done something against me. But God's word brings us back to saying, I'm going to get angry about the things God is angry about. And I'm not going to stay angry. We talked about that in our Ephesians podcast uh, last season, that we don't want the sun to go down, or we want the sun um, to go down. Sorry, I think I got it back. You don't let the sun go down on your anger. Thank you. Sorry, got it back. Don't go to bed angry, right? (laughs) How about that? I'll put it the the chase translation. Don't stay angry. Exactly. So anyways, um, but I love how he kind of wraps up this thought on anger in verse 20. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Look, your way of dealing with things doesn't work, I think is the way to put that. When I get angry because I'm mad and because of my own lusts, my own desires, well, how's that working out for you? Yeah. It does not produce the righteousness of God. Yeah. Think about the last time you got angry. Because I think for me, at least in my life, the times I've gotten angry and it been for selfish reasons far outweigh the, the times I've gotten angry for righteous reasons. And, and think about the last time you got angry and that you reacted to that. Did it really accomplish what you wanted it to? Maybe you got so worked up at someone, at a coworker, a family member, someone at church, whatever, and you finally said that thing you've been wanting to say to them all along. And it's like as soon as it comes off of, off of your tongue, you go, wow. I thought I'd feel better after saying that to that person, but it doesn't yeah, work. It's broken a lot of things. Exactly. Slow down. Be slow to anger. Think about is, what you're going to say. And this is the law of the farm, right? You sow what you reap. That's right. And he's, ta- he's, he's using that seed analogy all, all up through here. But the anger of man, if you sow that, it does not produce the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. It's going to produce death, ultimately. Um, just like he said, sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so he says, verse 21, uh, put away filthiness, wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word. I like that he calls it the meekness there, uh, which Jesus said, blessed are the meek, uh, for they'll inherit the earth. Um, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh, We need to be people who are receptive to the word of God, people who are soft, good soil, for the word. And all this goes back to the parable of the sower, right? Again, there's so many of the teachings of Jesus that are echoed in the book of James. He uses the seed analogy all the time. The sower sows the word and it falls on different kinds of hearts. And we need to think about when I listen to the word of God, is my reaction meek? Am I reading the word of God and do I react with stubbornness? Ah, oh, that's not what I want to hear. I, I, that can't mean, that can't be what that means. I need to make it mean something else. That's not what my teacher said or what my pastor said. I need to make it mean something else. It's not what I want to live by. Or do I read the word with pride and think, oh, I, I need to memorize this and I need to know all the facts and know all of the technical things about it so that people will be amazed by my Bible knowledge. Neither of those things are receiving with meekness the implanted word 
when we come to God's word, we need to come with hearts that are humble, hearts that are saying, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Uh, there's a song I really like called Speak, O Lord. It mm-hmm. talks about this idea. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the, tr- the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, mm-hmm. shape and fashion us in your likeness. Um, it's hard to see those lyrics without singing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's beautiful. But that's the whole idea here in James is receive with meekness the implanted word. If we're not meek, uh, we're like that hard ground mm-hmm. or like the ground with the thorns or the rocks. Um, it's easy for the to hear the word and hear the word and then to not do it. It's not bringing forth fruit in our life, which is the very next thing he's going to say in verse 22. Yeah, and real quick before we go to that, I just love the principle. Before you come to the word, why don't you go ahead and put aside all filthiness and all the wickedness that's there? There is instances in which the, the word is going to point out those imperfections in us, and I realize that. But I think there's also a cool principle here of, the word's going to have a hard time penetrating if you've got a bunch of stuff in the way. Set all that aside and humbly come to the word and say, all right, God, what else is there? <laughs> like, Just give it to me straight. What else do I need to work on? That's the type of humility that he's talking about here because it will save your souls. Get the rocks and the weeds out. That's right. It'll produce seed. It'll produce fruit. And it'll produce more seed. That is exactly <laughs> it's, right. All of this can go back to the garden. But here's the thing. This word that's implanted in us, great, awesome. You've got the word in you, but verse 22... Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. You got to take it further than that. It, it's not just head knowledge, but it's got to be knowledge that you live out. Yeah. And again, he said earlier, do not be deceived. Now he says again, if you're hearing the word, you can go to church all you want. You can study the Bible, read it. But if you're not letting it change you, that's not really at all what God intended. You can have a great Bible reading regimen. You can read it every day. But if you're not doing it, what is the point? You're deceiving yourself. You're making yourself feel good by sitting in a pew or going to a class or reading the good book. But if you're not letting it change your life, it's pointless. I've got something going through my head here right now. The wise man built his house on the rock. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is exactly how Jesus right. ends the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Thanks, thanks for singing. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate that. Yeah, but my point is, that's how Jesus ended. He, he gives this great message. We went through it in season three on things these people need to apply. And then he ends it by saying, hey, if you hear and do these things, you will be building your house on the rock. Mm-hmm. And then there's the foolish man, of course, who hears these things and doesn't apply them. And he's the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Mm-hmm. And when the storms come on both of these men's houses, whose house is left standing? The wise man who built his house on the rock. Right. But only if you hear it and do it. Yeah. And so this comes back to what Jesus said, and I think that's James's whole point. And then uh, James here takes it in a little bit of a different analogy. He doesn't use the builder analogy, but he uses the mirror analogy. And both of them kind of make the person look foolish. It's like, oh, there's a guy. like He didn't take the time to build his foundation, so his house fell down. Here's a guy who goes to the mirror, and he looks carefully at himself, and he sees himself in the mirror. And then he turns away and forgets exactly what he was like. And it would be like, you know, going to the mirror with like some great like, stain on your face. Like you're just eating like a whole bunch of hot wings or something. You're just like nasty. <laughs> and then like, oh, I'm fine. You know, it's like, did you, bro, did you even look in the mirror? Like, come on. Like, it's all over your face. Like everybody can see it but you. And that's what the word should do is we look at the word not just to see what the word says, but to let the word reflect who we are supposed to be. The word reveals where we need to change, just like the mirror reveals where I need to clean up. 
And when if I go to the mirror and see myself, I can look in the mirror all day long. But if I don't get the stuff off my face, what's the point of looking in the mirror? Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, that's what the word is like. If you go to the word and you, you let it reveal where you need to change and you just walk away, you're like the guy who looks at his face in the mirror and then forgets. Um, but by contrast, verse 25, if you're looking at the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's going to come up again in chapter 2. Mm-hmm. In just a minute, it's kind of a cool phrase. But if you look at the perfect law and then you persevere, not just being a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the second beatitude we've had in the book of James. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who is steadfast under trial. Here, blessed is the man who does not forget the word, but he does it. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. Again, echoing the Sermon on the Mount, the way Jesus opened that up. This is the second beatitude of James. And here's what I love. James, he does this the rest of the book. He'll say something pretty hard, something we need to listen to, but then he'll give us a practical way to go about it. And that's what 26 and 27 are. In verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Okay, so God's word obviously tells us to control our tongue. There's countless examples of that throughout the New Testament and Old Testament alike. And if you want to show yourself to be religious, bridle your tongue. And I love that idea of bridling your tongue. When you think of a bridle, you obviously think of something that's in a horse's nose. And uh, although this horse is this enormous creature, and this will be a point James will make a little bit later, Mm The bridle that is in his nose is so small, but it's on such a sensitive area. When you yank it left, that horse goes left. Or when you yank it right, the horse goes right. He's trying to follow that bridle. And so in like manner, we are wanting to bridle our tongue, control it in the direction that it ha- that it needs to go. And like I said, James will have more to say about that. Uh, I guess it'll be over in chapter, chapter three, three, where he'll talk more about the result of your tongue if you don't control it. Yes, he'll have a lot to say about what we say versus what we do. Yes. And here he's saying, if you don't control your tongue, you can think you're religious, but you're deceiving yourself. Here's the third time he talks about uh, not deceiving yourself, which is kind of interesting. Um, He deceives his heart. You know, do not be deceived back in verse 16. And then verse 22, you're deceiving yourself. And here you're deceiving your heart. Like, don't get led astray by this. You have to actually live this out. And here, this is kind of interesting because it's one of the few times in the New Testament that the word religion is used. And sometimes in our culture, the word religion has kind of a negative connotation. Like, I, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Yeah. And, and, and I think I know what sometimes people mean by that because there are types of religion that are defiled and are just man-made tradition. And if that's what we think of when we think of religion, well, yeah, we don't need to go to man-made religion. But here what he says, there is pure and undefiled religion. This, the real deal is good. These parodies and, and cheap counterfeits of it are things that give it a bad name. But pure and undefiled religion is a good thing. And he gives us a couple of things that are like at the very heart of what God's pure and undefiled religion is. You need to visit the helpless. Visit Orphans and widows in their affliction. I don't think he like literally just means like, okay, like I showed up. But the idea of visiting someone in their distress is like helping them, yeah. doing something to lighten the burden that they're dealing with and going to them. Um, these are people who have no one else. Orphans are without their parents. Widows are without their husbands. And they're the people, that, especially in their culture, but in ours as well, 
who, who don't have someone to provide for them, someone to take care of them. And so you be that person to go and care for those who can't care for themselves and do what you need to do. Don't just say you care about them. Go do it. And I'll tell you, the Lord really does, if I can put it this way, have he has a soft spot for, for these groups of people, these who, who cannot help themselves and they need help. Uh, I think about Deuteronomy chapter 10 is the law of Moses is given for us. It says, the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. By the way, those two verses sum up a good part of James in a, in a really cool way that maybe we'll talk about another time. But God has always had uh, a want for his people to be like him and to also show kindness to others who are less fortunate than themselves. And so, yes, Christians need to be involved with helping people that are less fortunate than them, specifically the orphans and the widows. We need to find ways to reach out to them and, and be an encouragement to them and maybe even help them in a monetary way as the Lord has provided us all individually with, with so many great things. And so this is not, I think, a suggestion. This is a command. This is what the Lord wants from us. And um, it's all through the prophets as well. Yeah. If you read the Old Testament, one of the things that God was very upset about in ancient Israel is the lack of care for the helpless. And then, of course, uh, the catch-all, as the New Testament writers like to do at the end of verse 27, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. <laughs> and it's like, oh, man, that's a, that's a high calling. And yes, that's exactly right. I think about something as unstained. I think another word for that is holy. Uh, we need to be holy, set apart, dedicated for God. Keep yourself away from the world. You know, I think it's so easy to go to one extreme or the other that like sometimes we think of Christianity as like, well, there's the Christians who are like really all about community service. And maybe they're not the strongest on morals. Maybe they're not like the most upstanding people, but like they serve people. Like they're out there helping people. Like be out there helping people. Absolutely. But he also says, keep yourself unstained from the world. But there's the other extreme of people who are really, really righteous, really, really holy, but are not lifting a finger to help people in need. This is not an either or. This is a both and. We need to be very worried about personal righteousness, keeping yourself unstained from the world. And at the same time, be worried about visiting orphans and widows in their distress. I mean, the Pharisees are kind of the classic example mm -hmm. of the latter of people who were very concerned about personal holiness, but not really, just their version of it. Um, but were not helping the helpless like Jesus wanted them to, and he has very strong words for them. But I think it's so easy for us to go to extremes in Christianity and, and emphasize one thing to the neglect of the other. And James 1, 27 is a really helpful verse that tells us it's, it's a both and, not either or. Yeah, that's right. And so this is, uh, this is a high calling. So let, let's look for ways this week to apply these verses, uh, keeping ourselves unstained by the world and finding ways to reach out to maybe those who are orphans or widows, maybe finding a way to, in your local community, reach out to people like that and see how you can help. And, of course, ultimately bridle your tongue, too. Uh, watch what you say, how you say it. Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you can know how to respond to each person. So very practical things coming from James that we can apply this week. Lord willing, next week, he's going to get more practical even in the way we have worship assembly and like how we treat people there. And he'll talk about the sin of partiality. And so Lord willing, we'll get to talk more about that next week. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating or a review 
Um, we'd love to study with you like we're doing here. Um, if you'd like to reach out to us, uh, 717-585-0949. You can text us or call us or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com or check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.